Let's open up to Psalm 6. Fitting Psalm, as we found ourselves this week in James chapter 1, and we looked at uh, just kind of what popped into my mind as like this life cycle of sin or biology of sin and how uh, you know it begins with a seed planted of uh, a, a man or a woman being led away by their own desire and enticed in temptation. Uh, but then the sin takes place after the temptation where uh, there's a yielding to that. There's a lack of refusal to that temptation. As Joseph refused the temptation from Potiphar's wife, uh, rather there's a, a conception of sin. We kind of broke it up into a flirtation with sin, into a conception uh, and birth of sin um, there when, when someone finally yields to it. And then that sin just festers and grows and becomes what James said is full grown. And when that sin is full grown, it brings forth death. And so interesting too, I, I hope you've had that James passage, verse uh, 9 through 12 in your minds this week, uh, as, as just daily we battle the flesh by the power of the Spirit. <laughs> uh, I sure have. And so uh, in Psalm 6, we have a prayer of faith in time of distress. <clears throat> Psalm 6 is known as the first of seven different penitential psalms. These are songs of confession of sin before the Lord, songs of humility before God. Uh, it was a custom in the early church to sing this psalm and the other seven on Ash Wednesday, which was the Wednesday before Easter, just preparing your heart to remember uh, Good Friday and to remember the resurrection and that work of Jesus there in Jerusalem, uh, and as we did this last year in our fast, we spent a lot of good time uh, laying our sins before the cross in preparation for remembering, just in concentrated form, the, the cross and the resurrection. And so have that in mind as we go into it. It's known as uh, one of the penitential psalms, a sorrowful psalm uh, due to sin. Uh, it starts out to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, also known as a Sheminith. This is a psalm of David. And first of all, we have an agonizing plea. It's a plea for the Lord to lighten his chastening hand or his disciplining hand. We're going to see uh, David just cry out an experience that uh, maybe you're familiar with in this room when you've sinned against the Lord and his convicting presence, his convicting hand comes upon you and you just sense that, I think David says in another psalm, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon me. Anybody sympathize with that at all? <laughs> I sure have. Uh, and he says, just he's just pleading that the Lord would lighten his hand as he says in verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. We don't have a context for this psalm. We don't know um, what sin he did to cause this conviction of the Holy Spirit, the heavy hand of the Lord. Uh, you know, I think it's Psalm 51 or Psalm 54. I get my numbers confused on this all the time where it's the psalm he wrote after sinning with Bathsheba and, and being found out on that. It's a beautiful psalm of just sorrow uh, over that sin. 
Um, and it has a heading above that, what was going on there for that. We don't have that for this one, so we're not sure exactly the situation, but David sensed he was under the rebuke of God here as he cries out, Lord, and, and here you see just the name of God, Yahweh. Uh, didn't we read that this week in the Eat the Bible, where, uh, who was he, was it Jacob that the Lord was speaking to? Someone help me out here. It all kind of, sometimes, was it, was it Moses? Was that the part, though, where it says, I am Yahweh? Is that it? I'm just, for some, I don't know if I looked at a translation or what. So we've got, I am that I am. Anybody else remember something? I just remember flicking somewhere and seeing that Yahweh there. So uh, I just remember seeing it. I am that I am for sure would be referencing that. Um, But here we have David, Lord in all capital letters. This is a a reference to the name of God. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Yahweh. Uh, oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh, don't judge me in your anger, in your angry state, Lord. I come before you, don't judge me and don't correct me, don't rebuke me, don't discipline me. When you're in an angry state, this, this anger, it's the same word in Psalm 2 that it, it's, it literally means nostril, <laughs> just kind of almost like a red bull or a bull's face, you know, just that... <laughs> I got to be careful that I don't do that too hard, but you know, <laughs> all right, just this wrath, this heated anger, this poison, this venom is what hot displeasure speaks of that that's the, that's the Lord's view of sin. We often don't remember that, that the Lord is angry against sin. The Lord has nostril against sin. As we read this week in James and we looked at the consequences of sin in Genesis 3 and in Achan's life in Joshua 7 and in David's life in 2 Samuel 11 and in, this, in the Proverbs 7 man, his hot displeasure against sin. Sin brings forth death. And, and interesting, the language here speaks of, you know, don't chasten me, Lord, in, in that venom, in that anger against sin. Psalm 118.18 Uh, Mark, can you read that? So you just kind of get this sense of like, just a spanking from the Lord, you know, that's like, it's severe correction, severe, but praise God, he didn't kill me in that, you know, and so David in this psalm is saying, Lord, when you're correcting me, please just don't do it in anger, you know, Um, Jeremiah 10, 24, uh, Kristen, would you read this one? Correct me, but with justice and Oh, Lord, if you were angry with me, if you were wrathful against me, I would just be just demolished. And you remember when David took the census at the end of 2 Samuel, and uh, there was a a wrong position of his heart in taking that. He was proud over the size of his armies, if you guys remember that, at the end of uh, 2 Samuel's account of his life. And uh, the Lord said, all right, you've been sinful in the way you took this census. And he says, uh, you get three choices of what your punishment is going to be. You know, does anybody remember those? Uh, one of them was like famine really severe against the land, I think. Another was, I'll let your enemies come in and just like ravish you for a period of time. And the third was, or I'll pick the punishment. The Lord will pick the punishment for you. And if that was up to you, what would you pick? Okay, the Lord could punish me or, you know, we could have an army come and, and maybe we could fight, you know, but okay, they're going to be over us and, or famine, you know, oh, or the Lord. And what was David's choice? The Lord's. 
He says, Lord, you're merciful. You're merciful. I want you to be the one that chastens me. Lest, lest we would come to nothing through these other armies. And so uh, there's just this understanding of the wrath of the Lord. And we're going to see a little bit later, though, an understanding of the mercy of the Lord as well. Um, we want to remember, though, as we talk about this, uh, the nostril of the anger against sin and, and the rebuke of the Lord, that it's a good thing. And it's a loving thing. And something that we've found over you know, the last few years here at the church is people think that correction and discipline and rebukes, whether it's brother to brother, sister to sister, you know, uh, mom to child, uh, church leadership to church member, anything, they think that's not loving. We want to understand that correction is loving. Discipline is loving. All right? Let's look at Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. Um, let's see here. So what does this say to us about chastening correction from the Lord? That it's a loving thing. And he uses the example of earthly fathers. Which one of us had an earthly father that didn't correct us? And we realize that it was for our good. And those of you that are parents, I mean, so often I'll tell uh, my son I'm thinking of because he's older and you can have a conversation, but you just say, you know, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't correct this in you. And I just let you continue on in it but you would grow up to be a man uh, of dishonor you'd be a man of rebellion you'd be a man of lies you'd be a man of wickedness but because i love you because the lord loves you he's called me to correct you and to discipline you and and uh and if and if we didn't do that then uh they would be illegitimate children the hebrews says there and not sons and this is a part of adoption as the lord has adopted us into his family as romans chapter 8 tells us that we have uh, received the adoption as sons and daughters and uh and that's a wonderful thing that we uh, have the inheritance of the lord we have the blessings of the lord jesus has shared his inheritance with us and brought us into the household of faith um but that includes the sanctifying work of discipline. And because we are adopted into the family, we have some uh, folks who've adopted in here, they would know that, uh, that you can't just let the adopted son or daughter come in and then rule the roost. You know, they got to come in and over time and through patience, you know, they learn that discipline is a very loving thing and that God has put me over your life uh, to, um, to train you up in the way you should go as Colossians and Ephesians say that, uh, you know, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And that speaks of both discipline and discipleship, disciplining and teaching them the word of God. Uh, and so David, as he's talking about, Lord, I know the rebukes come and I feel the heavy hand of the Lord upon me. I'm convicted for my sin. You're angry against my sin, Lord. Lord, just don't do it in anger. Lord, please do it as a father to his son, you know, do it in this loving adoption sense, Lord, please, or I would come to nothing. Uh, here we have uh, the two kinds of trouble that David is in here. Verse two, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me for my bones are troubled. Our Psalm last week spoke much of the mercy of the Lord as David was crying out to the Lord. Here again, the mercy of the Lord. Later on in a couple of verses, the mercy of the Lord. And he appeals to 
the mercy of the Lord. Where is it that speaks of the sure mercies of David? Anybody remember that? I'm just blanking a little bit. There's a scripture that speaks of, you've given us the sure mercies of David. And David was a guy who was after the, the Lord's own heart. The Lord himself said that. But he was also a guy that needed the mercies of God. And how often we just need to come to the mercy seat and appeal to those same mercies that were upon David, that they would be put upon us as well. Show me your favor, Lord. Show me the same compassion and be pitiful towards me as you were to David. For I am weak. I am faint. My bones are troubled. Literally, my body and vigor are afraid, bewildered, and in agony. Anybody ever been there before? Just you know you've sinned against the Lord and your life has just been sucked out of you. You are just in agony knowing that you've sinned against a holy God. Hosea 6.1. Paula, will you read this one? So you just find yourself like Hosea in a place of being torn and stricken. And, um, and yet the Lord doesn't just leave us like that. Just, uh, but rather he heals us and he binds us up from those times of correction. So David's in a place where he's weak. He just wants healing. He needs the Lord. Lord, it's time to bind me up, Lord. It's, it's time to heal me. Um, verse 3, my soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O oh Lord, how long? A couple different translations of this that I appreciated. My soul is greatly dismayed, in deep anguish, struck with terror. These were trials of body, where his bones are weary. He, it was a trial of soul, just amplified with David's sense of God's anger against him. Maybe even in a place just not very confident in God's love and assistance there. Uh, it just feels unbearable for David. Almost like when Jesus prayed in John 12, 27. Ken, will you read this prayer? Just we have the true and better David here uh, in the person of Jesus. You know, knowing what it's like to cry out uh, to the Lord, knowing that uh, he's about to be uh, made a sacrifice for David's sin. You know, thousands of years later, the sins of David are going to be placed upon the son of David. In 1 Peter uh, 2, 23, and so uh, just Jesus again, uh, Peter's describing Jesus' suffering, didn't shout back was suffering and he had this committing to the Lord in the midst of this trial but you oh Lord how long how long will this chastisement last will you perhaps maybe shorten this disciplining time Lord uh, uh, when I was studying for this um, my kids were grounded um, I think from video games or something like that and oh it was, what was it it doesn't really matter but something they really wanted and uh Little Laney just keeps coming and appealing, you know. How long was that again, <laughs> you know? How long was that going to be? And um, perhaps we could shorten that, you know. And uh, our kids do it to us. David did it to the Lord. How, how long again, Lord, is this going to last? We have the urgency of David's plea in verses 4 and 5. Return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. Take me out of this is what deliver me means. Take me out of this trial and rescue me is what save me means. Rescue me. Be victorious in this trial, Lord. 
But notice, this is just very beautiful here at the end of this verse. For your mercy's sake. For your mercy's sake. Remember, the chief end of it all. Yes, uh, when the Lord disciplines, it corrects us. And, and when the Lord relents, it's, it's marvelous. But in the end of it all is that God would be glorified. And that's what mercy even can mean. It can mean glory. For your glory's sake, for your favor, for your loyal love, save me, deliver me. That'll be wonderful. And isn't it wonderful to be saved, everybody here? And everyone who's saved, remember our last verse of our last psalm, rejoice those that love the Lord. We have a lot to rejoice about if you've been saved from your sins and death and the penalty of the wrath of God. But that's not even the chief end. As wonderful as that is, that's not the end of it all. The end is that God would be glorified for your sake, Lord. Save people in Nepal in the next few weeks. Save people. Do a radical work. We were dreaming the dreams of God here at our meeting on Saturday for the Nepal trip. Maybe the Lord will save a whole village. Someone said, maybe the Lord would do that through our foolishness. Wonderful things. But Lord, do it for your glory. Not for our glory. For your splendor. For your mercy's sake. God, save a village. Save a, save a, a, a lodge owner. Save a Sherpa, Lord. Save someone who's never called in the name of Jesus and never heard the name of Jesus before. Save, Lord. But for your name's sake, for your mercy's sake, I encourage you as we're going through the Bible this year to get a pen and underline or un- highlight in your Bible. Every time you see just kind of references to the purpose of everything, and you'll get to phrases like this, for your mercy's sake. We're seeing that in Pharaoh right now, aren't we? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that I can be glorified. Have you noticed that yet? So be looking for those things and highlight those. Because that's very important in our ecclesiology as a church. Why are we doing things? Look at the very bottom line of our vision statement over there. For the glory of God. There's a lot of people that would argue with that. It's not for the glory of God. It's, it's for me. It's for us. It's for you. Guys, those are wonderful things and true things. But that's not the end. The end is every tribe, tongue, people, and nation bowing before the throne of God, the Lamb of God. We will cast everything good that we've ever got to our name, cast it before him and say to you alone, you alone are worthy. The glory of God is the chief end of man. Don't forget it. For the mercy's sake of God, lighten up the discipline, God. Verse 5, for in death there's no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? Um, essentially, Lord, if you kill me, I'm one of the main worship leaders here, God. I mean, who's going to lead the songs? Who's going to write the Psalms? You know, the Lord doesn't need David and the Lord doesn't need me and the Lord doesn't need you by his grace. He chooses to use us and include us in his plan. But you can kind of hear his heart here. I'm like, my bones are like out of joint and things are rough right now. My soul is in anguish. If you kill me, who's going to declare your praise? Uh, Psalm 39, um, just kind of coming around the horn here. Courtney, will you read that? Psalm 88, 10, Dakota, 10 and 10 through 12. You get a long one. Lord, don't kill the one that's going to be praising you, Lord. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, churchyards are silent places. The vaults of the sepulcher echo not with songs. Damp earth covers dumb mouths. Then we have a determined resolution 
from David with verses six and giving us verses six and seven giving us a very vivid description of his agony. Verse six, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make or every night I make my bed swim. I drench or flood my couch with my tears. And uh, man, this has just probably been in, in uh, many of our lives in times of just feeling the hand of the Lord and, uh, and trying to sleep through the night and just having godly sorrow that brings about repentance, tears in our bed. Uh, our bed is swimming and drenched in a flood with, uh, with our tears. Verse 7, my eye wastes away weak because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. David's eyes were red and sore from all the tears and from the lack of sleep. My eye wastes away. I've been, you know, not sleeping and I've been bawling. I've, I've got so much grief here. I found myself in this place last week. My core group started meeting on Thursday morning last week. And, and uh, you know, one of our objectives in this season is to just grow a, um, grow a, a place of vulnerability and um, transparency, just being real with one another, confessing sin. And uh, by the time we got to that part of our study, a couple of guys had left. And it was just me and Jeremy Green. And, and I had been in a place where the hand of the Lord was heavy for a few days upon my heart. And I couldn't end core group without getting prayer, confessing sin, and, and just God breaking me. And it was just great time with me and Jeremy, and we both struggled with the same thing. And uh, specifically, to be real, it's just um, being very hard on my kids when, when I'm under pressure. Being very hard on them. Just no grace. Grace for everybody else in the church. They can call me any name that they want. But when I'm under pressure and you know my kid needs something or wants something, it's just not pretty. It's not at all a representation of, of the father. And it's not a representation of the son and, uh, and the carnality that comes out in that. And then, the, you know, just the times where I've, I put pressure on myself through various things. And then I'm just wrathful, wrathful to people when I'm driving, wrathful to people when they are holding me up from getting there. On t- you know, just not representative of Christ and calling it sin and just trying to look at the heart of that and seeing in me that I want it to appear that Rory's kingdom is polished and organized and awesome. Even though it's not, and I don't really care so much that it's not, I just want it to look like it is. I'm not a perfectionist. I just want it to look like I am. Okay? And so when anybody comes across my path that touches that, they're going to get it. And the Lord showed me that idolatry in my life. And I had to call it what it was. And, and there was just sorrow. There was, uh, it was, it was good. And I just encourage you guys to just allow the Lord to b- bring conviction for all the little things and all the big things in your life and to be open with your core group. And then I came and I had a meeting with a couple elders and we were talking and, and, uh, I was able to be sympathetic in the situation we were talking about because I'm no better than the sinner we were talking about. And I said, and I just shared with Jeremy this, and bah, you know, start bawling again. And one of the elders was hanging around later, and my eyes were like, oh, just hurting and puffy. And have you guys ever been there? 
Like you can barely open them and like little gusts of wind. You're like, yeah, every day. And I, I had studied this for last week and I was like, I feel like David right here where my eye wastes away weak because of grief. And, uh, and so, you know, just feeling this verse this week, Job said, my eye has also grown dim because of sorrow. I'm vexed. I'm taunted. I'm provoked because of all my enemies, people who are treating me with hostility and attacking me. Uh, David has a confident declaration in this, though. In verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping, or he's heard my trickling teardrops. There's like this joy now. It appears that the Lord is kind of lifting up his hand and, and showing David those tender mercies. Uh, but notice he says, it's kind of strange in this prayer, depart from me all you workers of iniquity. It could be that the sin that led David into this chastisement was that he was associating with ungodly men. He was forgetting Psalm 1 about blessed are those who aren't walking in the counsel of the ungodly or sitting in the seat of the scornful and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so it seems that the Lord is showing him there needs to be a change of heart there and those ungodly associates of his need to depart. Uh, J. Edwin Orr describes some of the work among new converts in Halifax during the second great awakening that was in Britain. He writes, among them was a boxer who had just won a money prize and a belt. So this guy gets saved, right? He's a boxer, famous guy that just gets saved. And a crowd of his erstwhile companions stood outside the hall in order to ridicule him. And they hailed the converted boxer with a shout. He's getting converted. What about that belt? Thou'll either have to fight for it or give it up. And the boxer retorted, I'll both give it up and you up. If you won't go with me to heaven, I won't go with you to hell. So he gave them the belt, but persuaded some of them to come into the, the service that was happening at that time, where another one of his friends was uh, saved and then was set busily working the work of the ministry. And so uh, just this, you know, we have that ministry among the non-believers, but it's that fine line between where we're ministering and we're among them, and then we become of them. And, uh, but then at the end of that, verse 8, he says, uh, For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping, or he's heard my trickling teardrops. We just see that weeping in this psalm has a, weeping has a place before the Lord. Spurgeon said, Is it not sweet to believe that our tears are understood even when words fail? Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers. As another psalm says, that the Lord numbers our tears and he stores them in a bottle. Apparently the Lord had heard just the cries of David. As verse 9 says that he did. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Psalm 3, we studied this a few weeks back. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. Verse 10, let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. And so uh, just interesting, there's references to enemies that are causing some bit of this. Maybe he was sinful in the way he was treating his enemies. 
But uh, this closes with just almost like this victory uh, that the Lord has heard his prayers. Let the enemies be troubled and let them turn back with uh, being humiliated. Um, This word greatly troubled means to be horrified out of one's own senses. Just that the enemy would... um, would be ashamed that he's attacked us the way that he has. Once Martin Luther wrestled hard with God in prayer and came jumping out of his prayer closet, crying out, Vissimus, Vissimus. That means victory, victory. And David seems to have a same sense of prevailing prayer with God in this time of just humility and brokenheartedness before the Lord. Um, I was looking today through some of my files, and R.A. Torrey wrote the book How to Pray. Um, uh, Andrew Murray wrote uh, With Christ in the School of Prayer, I think. And then there's an unknown author who wrote The Kneeling Christian. We've gone through all those at the Pulse, just growing in our prayer lives. And many of them are free online. You can just download you know, the PDF of them online. I encourage you to read those. But all throughout each one of those, it speaks of prevailing prayer prevailing prayer and uh it seems that david had some prevailing prayer the lord's in verse 9 said the lord heard my supplication and will receive my prayer 